So we're coming into the final straight here, and I realize listening to today, and this is one of those great cases where coming to most of the conference is a very good idea, that I had actually prepared most of my talk with the wrong hat on. As you will see in the program, I am the founding director of the Center for the Advancement of Sustainable Medical Innovation. So looking at the whole process from bench through bedside to adoption of innovation. But I'm also the chair of the South London AHSN, which hopefully a four initials you've heard of before and you'll certainly hear more of again, Academic Health Science Network. I should probably have had the second hat on most of the time. But anyway, uh, so I'm going to engage in uh, what I call dynamic rebalancing. Others may call it making it up as I go along. So I wanted to make four very simple points to begin with. Firstly, as you will have picked up throughout the day, as economic pressures build on the health systems of the world, including the NHS, innovation must be seen as the source of solutions, not the source of the problem. Secondly, between discovering something new and it being finally adopted by the system, I see three main global, actually, gaps in translation. But for the NHS, I'm going to focus mainly on the third gap, which is the gap of adoption and diffusion, because I believe that financial short-sightedness, vested interests, and cultural resistance are our main enemies. It's not a lack of technology, and I think that's in common with some things said in the recent sessions. And my final point is that the innovation, health, and wealth agenda is our best chance to change the culture and the AHSNs are going to be a key vehicle for doing so, or I shall die in the attempt. So, uh, as you'll see if you had a glance at my overlong bio, I've spent most of my career in the private sector, actually, working uh, in the States and in Europe. And, of course, driving innovation in a private sector business is completely different from driving innovation in a decentralised NHS, which is composed of private contractors, in the case of GPs, competing hospitals, uh, ever-changing commissioning systems, and so on. But I think there are some principles, and we heard, of, heard many of them from Clay Christensen this morning, that we can take to heart applicable in the NHS too. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book, which if anybody in the audience hasn't read it, I can warmly commit no. <laughs> it's called 2030, The Future of Medicine, Avoiding a Medical Meltdown. And almost every healthcare story I've seen uh, in that last couple of years suggests to me that meltdown was not too extreme a term to use. It's a good term for publishers, but it's not too extreme a term to use because the drivers of healthcare, underlying healthcare demand are enormous. Aging populations, ever-increasing expectations, lifestyle disease, periodic pandemics, look, whichever direction you do, there's no chance that the demand, underlying demand for healthcare is going to reduce. And so we have to innovate, and we have to innovate radically. And I have four dimensions that I use. So the first is make healthcare finally, truly personal. So let's stop talking about public health, talk about personal prevention, talk about personalized medicine delivery, talk about empowering, and indeed, I know this is terribly countercultural in the UK, even incenting patients to look after themselves. Secondly, restructure in a radical way how healthcare should be delivered. I call it pulling care upstream out of the hospital, but you saw Clay Christensen's slides out, which I totally agree with. And then eliminate waste as ruthlessly as we can in the system that we have. Thirdly, and this is where the NHS has been a long way away from best practice, 
drive the system on productivity in terms of outcomes over costs rather than activity. The vast majority, and I had a, a coffee conversation just before coming on here about quaffs. Quaffs still um, uh, reward doctors for ticking boxes and running tests. They don't reward doctors. Wouldn't it be an interesting thing if we could write the next GP contract on the outcomes you achieve rather than the stuff you do? But that's equally true in, in hospitals, that they're rewarded by how many patients they take in and treat and so on. But the fourth one, which is the sine qua known and is even harder than the third, is integrate the process of care around the patient via information. Information that is indeed seamless through the processes of care. And all of these require innovation. They don't all require gizmos, but they all require innovation in care design, delivery or management. But we will have, this is the good news, we will have a lot of technologies, whether they be biomarkers or home monitors or other telehealth tools, to enable these things. We have to think of them as enablers, not the answer in themselves. But we've got a whole bunch of technologies now that we can use. So I talked earlier about three gaps in translation. I'll very quickly deal with the first two before focusing on the third. And this is where CASME has really been focusing its attention since we founded it between Oxford and UCL a year or two ago. And the first gap in translation is between the person who invents and the creator of a product of use. And, and the big problem there, and I won't go into it because it's not so relevant to today, is the relative lack of interest amongst academic researchers in the practical impact of their research. Uh, I spent a lot of time in the Oxford system, a lot of time at UCL, a lot of time at King's actually because of the South London connection. There are lots of incredibly creative, inventive clinicians out there but they, until recently anyway, had zero interest in either forming companies, or spinning stuff out or whatever. Now, of course, with the impact assessments that are being fed into the REF, for those of you who know the university system, that is slowly changing. The second is this gap between, okay, I might well have made a discovery of value and I think I can create something with a proof of concept, but getting it through a system which is incredibly cumbersome and costly in the regulatory terms, whether you're talking about a device, a drug, or a practice, is, again, very, very daunting. And so we're doing a lot of work on concepts like adaptive licensing, which some of you may have heard of, to get, for example, medicines to patients after just the first couple of phases of clinical trial rather than long and very costly phase three trials, which fundamentally don't prove everything anyway. Let's give, if, as long as the balance between benefit and risk is, is positive, give it to a larger number of patients on the condition that you actually track what the technology does. But let me come to what I think is more the nub today's conference, which are the barriers and solutions to greater innovation in the NHS. And I believe, and I'm not sure how controversial this is, that this is not a matter for research, nor indeed, with Chris's permission for saying this, even conferences, it's a matter of leadership. And those of you who heard Bernie in the, uh, from Liverpool in the uh, last session on process redesign in healthcare, that was leadership. That was genuine leadership. Tom, to spare his blushes, is doing the same in Essex. It's about leadership. It's not about either gizmos or technical problem solving. But what does the leadership have to confront? The first is financial short-termism. My observation to the NHS over many years is there's only one commandment in the NHS, and it is thou shalt not overrun this year's budget. That's what you get fired for. 
Uh, and, and we don't need to go into all of the France's conclusions and so on. But what we do need to reflect on is that almost all of what we're trying to do here pays off over a period of time. There aren't many innovations, whether process innovations or technological innovations, which pay back this year. So unless we can crack that nut, either through determination of leadership or change of the system, we're never going to have the investment in, the, in what is technologically possible. The second is vested interests. Here we are at the Royal Society of Medicine, but we could have the same discussion in any of the Royal Societies. There are some, some closed shops in medicine, and that will even extend down to nurse practitioners, pharmacists, and so on, who will resist change for the very obvious reason that they lose out when, when change occurs. And, and you only have to think about all of the strong cases to centralise and specialise care in the system that have founded on either professional self-interest or political resistance or a, you know, a really powerful com combination of the two in recent uh, almost months, not necessarily years. Uh, whether you're talking about specialising heart surgery amongst children, whether you're talking about pathology labs that can work really efficiently for a larger population, whether you talk about cancer genomics being done in a few places really well rather than in every basement of every hospital rather poorly. Vested cl clinical interests and professional concerns are an enormous barrier. And so only really open-minded clinicians and professionals backed up by demanding patients will break those barriers as they help do for the London Stroke Service. So you probably, most of you know this, London is one of the best cities, if you're going to have a stroke, to have one now, as a result of the intense specialisation in a few centres. And uh, it was the Stroke Association that really played an important role in persuading people that it was better to do things really well in a few places. But the, the third is really just general cultural resistance, and that can take uh, several forms. A refusal to look outside your boundaries to what works better elsewhere, how many conversations have you had where you've tried to suggest that some innovation in the US might work here? And you see the shutters come down. And then you hear, system, they don't have a system. Look at their costs. Um, you know, there's nothing we can learn. Whereas, you know, Chris, I, I commend you for bringing Clay to, to, to speak to us because there's enormous lessons to be learned from places like Kaiser, Geisinger, Intermountain Health, and so on. So I had lunch a couple of days ago with a friend who lives in California. He has access to his own medical record on his own uh, smartphone. He can track his results over recent months. He can decide whether there's a worrying trend even before his physician or clinician does. He's got modern IT at his fingertips. He actually is a Kaiser patient. They don't do everything right, but they do do that pretty well. And uh, your reaction is probably that's very Californian. Well. That solution could happen in Clapham today. The technology exists. It could happen in Cardiff today. It can happen anywhere. It didn't begin with C. We all are using that level of technology in so many other aspects of our lives. Why have we not got it in Clapham? Or if we do there, why don't we have it more generally? He also told me about two sons-in-law. He has two daughters who are both physicians in the NHS. One of them is a pathologist. He spends all his days looking at slides. There is new technology coming on image analysis for looking at slides. So his father, who's a rather his father-in-law, was a rather entrepreneurial kind of guy. He said, "Well, why don't you set up a business? You know, we could do this together." And he said, "Nobody would countenance that within my profession here in the NHS." He has a second son-in-law who is a doctor in A and E, 
And this fellow asked him, how much time does he spend taking care of patients? I don't know what you would have guessed. Answer is 25%. The other 75% is filling in forms on what he did on the 25% and calling up wards to get beds for his patients. Again, there's just so many simple IT tools that could be used uh, to overcome this problem. But let me then counterbalance that with my own experience yesterday. And so since it's a good experience, I'll mention where it was. It was St. George's Hospital in Tooting. And I was referred by my ever-vigilant GP because I had excessive intraocular pressure in my left eye in my last routine optician's examination. So I went to the Moorfields Eye Clinic in St. George's Hospital. I see one or two people smiling because maybe you've been there or you know about it. By golly, that is a focused, performance-driven organization. I had an appointment for 8.45. It said on the piece of paper, yeah, you might want to write half the day off. You never know, right? I was called in at 8.42. By the way, nobody knows I'm the chairman of the South London AHSA, and I just want to make that point. <laughs> St. George's falls into that, but I don't, I don't believe NHS systems are quite capable of spotting it. <laughs> so I was just a page. I was called in at 8.42, I had six different examinations done within about eight minutes, and then when it was passed from one person to another, like that. And I was called personally by the person who was going to do the test, taken, sat down in the, in the chair. And I asked them, how, you know, this looks really cool. How did this come about? Well, they said, well, first of all, now we're operating in St. George's. This isn't Moorfields. We don't have all the history here. We can lay it out the way we want it. And the senior consultant helped lay this whole thing out. And it, it was a focused factory. I think that's the phrase that Clay Christensen uses. So I tell this story because it, it actually is possible to do. Uh, it turns out, by the way, that you have a very simple device using light which measures the thickness of your cornea. And that was what they did to me. And in fact, because I have a thick cornea, I never knew I was walking around with a thick cornea, that means that the simple puff test that you have on your eyeball gives the wrong reading. If you have a thick cornea, it looks as if you've got high intraocular pressure. But I had a complete eye examination in about an hour and a half, so I now know I don't have a lot of things right wrong with my eye, mostly. So I tell that story to counterbalance the other one, where there is leadership and determination and actually a bit of green fielding and the ability to manage it as an entity. We can do it within the NHS. I would argue that the innovation, health and wealth agenda is our best chance of helping to drive this because that means we have a government that is committed to the NHS being concerned with driving innovation across its practice and indeed deriving wealth for the nation out of driving innovation across its practice. But that will only work if the entrepreneurial spirit is released. So if we take these academic health science networks for a minute, they need to be freed to take risk. I seem to remember reading something about taking risk in this program. And free to work with anyone who might have a solution, whether they come from overseas or within the NHS, whether they come from patient organizations, private sector organizations, or other NHS organizations. And, and they actually have to be freed from this form filling and the threat of micromanagement. So how are we in South London going about our challenge the first thing is to start with what the big unsolved problems are clinically. We happen to have picked on five areas, so none of them will surprise you. Diabetes, dementia, musculoskeletal, alcohol dependency, and cancer, which we're doing with the London Cancer Alliance. And the first thing we're doing is getting 
all the stakeholders for those together in a room, and we got 100 people recently in diabetes, to say, what are the big unsolved problems? Now, any of you who are diabetologists or dealing with diabetes for one reason or another will not be surprised to know that three out of those five were all about patient self-management. They weren't about what the system did. They were about what the patient should do. But then we bring in, and we're going to start that process actually tomorrow in our industry advisory board, to bring in the private sector and the SBRI program and other players to say, hey, where are the skills and technologies that can help solve those problems? So rather than the NHS responding to a technology brought to it from outside, starting with the fundamental problems that we face within our clinical priority areas, and then to create real change proposals and the business cases for those, agree those with, with people in procurement or whoever has to agree, create pilots within South London, and maybe even set up businesses, create jobs in South London or anywhere else that the HSNs exist, social enterprises might be a good formula to take, and then spread those out across the NHS and who knows, dominate the world. But that process, maybe not that choice of areas of focus, but that process is broadly, I think, going to be what the HSNs do. And then, finally, I read what was the title of the session. That was probably something rather late in the day, but it said, how can government and national policy support innovative practice and risk-taking locally? So I made a list of four things. I don't know if they're the right things, but they occurred to me at the time. The first is make delivery on innovation, health and wealth a major goal for the top echelons in the NHS and thereby the rest of the organisation. Use a leadership transition that we're in the middle of to make delivery on innovative change a priority, not an also-ran. The second, and I would say this wouldn't I as an AHSN chair, fund them adequately. The good news is we're going to get some money. The bad news is it's about half what we thought we would get. And it's a tiny, tiny fraction of what the NHS spends. Right? So those centres that are meant to be driving innovation do fund them adequately. People have talked about innovation-driven businesses. If you look in the pharmaceutical sector, I'm on the board of a company that spends 22% of revenue on R&D. Now, I don't know what would happen to the NHS if it spent 22% of revenue on R&D, but it would be nice to spend a very small percentage rather well, and the AHSN's a good way of doing it. I'm actually speaking to Rachel Cashman here. The rest of you can sort of read the newspaper <laughs> <laughs> because she's in charge of the program, but um, as you probably heard earlier. The third is structure the funding and budgetary processes that run through the clinical commissioning groups and the specialised commissioning groups to allow for this to allow for the funding of things that pay back over a period of time. We're not asking 20 years, three to four years would be enough, maybe even 18 months, but to escape from the rigidity of the annual budget. But the fourth one is, don't tell us how to do it. Again, I hope Rachel won't mind if I mention this, but the first draft of the licence that came to the AHSNs had 33 specific goals to be reported on. And all of the AHSNs said what they thought of 33 specific goals. So micromanagement of innovation is a contradiction in terms. If I didn't come from Oxford, I'd call it an oxymoron. Consistent national frameworks are an enemy of innovation. So we got 15 different AHSNs, give them their head. Obviously hold them accountable. They're spending public money in order to get both uh, improvements in outcomes and the creation of wealth. 
but give them an ahead and, and look in a year or two's time what are some of the most interesting things and then spread them around. So my apologies for giving not the talk I came here to give, but I appear to have finished in time, so that might be the most important thing. Thanks. Thanks.